I hate to start on a downer note, but it's such a shame that we didn't get more of Mega Man Zero One, but better in this one. <laughs> Mega Man Zero One, for all of its many, many issues, nevertheless tried stuff. It was trying to push forward what a Mega Man game could be by trying different formats of mission flow and level design and boss design. And that was awesome. And I actually liked it. It's one of the things I loud most about Zero One. Zero Two is a bog-standard Mega Man game. We've got four levels, each of which has a standard animal-themed motif boss Maverick style from the X-Series. Then we have two in-between levels, then we have four levels, then we have the final levels. It's, it's just bog-standard Mega Man, and that's a shame. Don't mistake me. Zero Two is way better of a game than Zero One on many levels, but it is lacking that trying something thing. This is something I've talked about before when it comes to the rare games. Well, I personally do think the rare games are really, really flawed, <laughs> I will ever and always give them credit for trying, for actually pushing the boundaries of what could be done, and tr and, and just, just attempting new things when it came to game design. I, I pointed out how Diddy Kong Racing, despite the aggravation of those frickin' boss fights and some of the bullcrap of some of the levels, nevertheless was in many ways a superior game to Mario Kart 64 because it tried stuff. Right? It pushed that envelope. The same concept. So it's a bit of a shame that they backpedaled a little bit with Zero Two rather than taking their ideas and going forward. Because it's very clear they learned a lot of lessons. Zero Two is a much more polished product. And that's the biggest reason why I enjoyed this one so much more. Uh, Zero One was frustration. Zero Two was fun. Big difference. Let me tell you, going through that and, and experiencing that, it was night and day. It's doubly funny, too, because if we look at how long it took me to get through both games, it's about 7 point, I think, 8 hours was for zero one, and 7.83 hours, so it's a difference of about, like, 10 minutes, I want to say, uh, between zero two. And you might say, oh, so they're about the same length. No, zero one is a much shorter game. But zero one was frustrating and involved a lot of dying over and over and over on the same content. Whereas zero two did not involve that. Oh, we had a few deaths. Don't mistake me, Zero Two still has its problems and its flaws. There's still the gotcha problem. I didn't really explain that last time, so let's explain that. Um, nowadays, gotcha, G-A-C-H-A, means a, a certain type of mobile game design, which is usually about predatory practices and trying to force you into uh, buying stuff. But it's okay because you don't have to buy stuff because you do stuff for free. You know, Twitch is currently doing a gotcha thing, which just doesn't even get into that. But gotcha is an old concept in game design. This goes back to the 80s. Uh, gotcha, as in G-O-T-C-H-A, exclamation mark, is when you're going through a level and you're going through a platform or whatever, and then the game just goes, pa, gotcha! And unless you knew it was coming or had extremely good reflexes, sometimes you can't have the reflexes for these things. Sometimes you just die. Then you die. So you have to memorize the upcoming platforming. And a lot of the old NES platformers had that. Now, back in the day, a lot of that was being done specifically to elongate a game and, and increase its perceived value. Nowadays, it's done as a design choice, and I do think that it's not a good one, and it's not the kind of thing I am particularly fond of. Anytime you've ever tried to jump across a platform, and an enemy you didn't see attacked you or ran into you as you're jumping, and so you plummet into the pit, that's a gotcha mechanic, okay? Nothing they do... Uh, and in addition to that, is they check their notes to remember what the other things are. Let's just get some white blinding light in my face here. Uh, they do the boss refights thing. All the Mega Man do, Mega Man's do the boss refights. It's 
I'll never forget that. But there, there are two other big things that I wanted to talk about. Three, actually. Uh, one is the screen crunch. Now, I actually talked about this a bit, I think. I'm sorry, I, I've covered like three games in three days across two formats, both streaming and pre-recorded. So forgive me if I don't remember if I've talked about this. But the screen pr- crunch problem, in brief, is a problem with the GBAs, where the screen is super zoomed in, and so you can't see what the hell's going on around you. And it's a, it's a problem endemic to many GBA games. It's very much still a problem here. However, there are slight improvements, and I'll talk about the micro-improvements thing in a minute. The other thing they did was they have... Ice physics. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, ice physics. Oh, God. But no, these are so much worse. This is in contest for some of the worst ice physics I have ever seen in a video game. So we actually gave it two separate negatives for those. Because it's not just that you get on the platform and you slip and slide. That's normal ice physics. Everything does that. Everything since Mario 2, I want to say, does that. It's, it's, been, it's been a common thing since the early NES days. No. I'm talking about the fact that your dash doesn't work right. Now, if you don't understand why that's important, the introduction of the dash mechanic to Mega Man X1 was a substantial and significant change to the format of Mega Man. I will talk more about that when we get to Mega Man X1, because we're going to talk about that there. But it was a big sea change in how the game operated and how the levels were designed. Because all of a sudden, you can change the speed at which you can approach enemies. It gives you more options for dodging, because of the additional speed and uh, the angle, which you can do it. Like, it changes your angle of your jumps. And, of course, it allows you to bypass more stuff if you know what you're doing. It kind of raised the skill cap a little bit and put more of the tools in the player's hand for how they want to get through a level and how they want to fight a boss. A good thing pretty much all around. As long as the levels were designed around that. Several examples, several of the ice physics areas have jumps that are clearly impossible to, to accomplish unless you do a dash jump. They require a dash jump to make the distance. Dash doesn't work right on ice. Now, explaining the specifics of it, this is getting into speculation, but near as I can tell, as long as you are on the ice, the dash just doesn't work at all. You get a little bit of a boost, but it doesn't actually do anything. It just pushes you in a direction. However, if you manage to do what near as I can tell is actually a frame-perfect trick, or at least very near frame-perfect trick, you can dash jump, which is when you hit dash and jump at the same frame, off of the ice, and that will actually give you the dash momentum in order to be able to do that. But it's inconsistent because it's it's super tight timing, and you have to maintain that. Otherwise, you lose it. So if you, you try to dash to get the momentum and then you jump across, sure. But you could dash and then lose the momentum and just fall into the pits and die. And that happened several times. The other thing you can do, by the way, and I discovered this early on, is you can maintain momentum if you carry it off of the ice. So if you start off on normal terrain and you're dashing, as long as you don't touch the ground for longer than probably about a frame, you retain your dash momentum. This is not good design. I I am actually astonished this got through QA. I'm curious what the heck they were thinking with this. Granted, this is a game that has a thing that prevents you from instantly dying from spikes, but I don't know about you, I didn't get that till later. The other thing that this game uh, still had problems with, I I mentioned the screen, I mentioned the ice physics, I mentioned the gotcha, but there's one thing this game did that was actually worse than the first game, notably and objectively, and that is the Ninja Gaiden mechanic. How many of you have played Ninja Gaiden back on the NES? I have. I've actually, I've beaten that game twice without cheats. Once, uh, way back in the day, that would have been, oh god, I would have been like eight, seven or eight, something like that. And once, a few years ago, when I was playing through it with my friend Third for the now-deceased, uh, then-and-now series. 
that game, it's it's certainly iconic and, and has some really good level design and some good uh, general design. And then it has Ninja Guide mechanics. So let me explain this briefly, because I, I had to explain this for several people uh, before now. Ninja Guide mechanics is when an enemy spawns based on the camera hitting a certain point. So in the old NES stuff, this was done because of hardware limitations. You, you had to have... So uh, only so many enemies on the screen at the time because the NES can only render so many at a time. So rather than having the NES actively rendering the enemies across the stage, those enemies don't exist until you hit the spawn trigger. The enemy spawns, and then it comes after you. Anybody who knows Ninja Gaiden knows you can actually trick that and, and do some careful camera manipulation to actually despawn those enemies. But anybody who's just playing normally, what happens is you walk over here and then enemy spots and it hits you and knocks you back, and then you walk over here and an enemy spawns and it... It's a problem. It's especially a problem in any game that has any kind of platforming because your enemies are effectively respawning around you as you're trying to do it. It also prevents you from clearing to go ahead and try and just get through it. Now, it was at least understandable in the NES era, and we will discuss if that deserves a negative if we ever actually review those games. But for a GBA game, this is a style choice. They decided to do this in order to have the enemies respawn. And that sucks. Moving on. But I've been talking a lot of negativity. I just mentioned how this game is a lot less frustrating. I mentioned the, the Grand Theft Auto thing back in the Bloodborne thing. And that was kind of how Zero One felt. Zero Two did have a few frustrating moments. There was uh, one boss that irritated me until I figured out his gimmick. And I ended up giving that boss a positive. It's the Phoenix, if you're wondering. And I guess I can explain that really quick. The Phoenix has a thing where he'll just stand there and do nothing. He just sits there until you do something. And then he does a counterattack based on what you do. And so it's a completely reactive fight. Now, if you know that, you can control the tempo of the fight. And it puts the entirety of the fight in your hands, which is actually a really cool concept once you know it. When you're just trying to fight the guy normally, you're trying to wonder why all your charge shots are missing. It's because he auto-dodges all of your first attacks as a result of his counter mechanic. He also summons, uh, what was it? It was um, Vile from 1, Agile from 2. Uh, bitter Bite, I forget which, from 3, because I always get those two confused. And Colonel from 4, which I find hysterical that that's the guy. Anyways, <clears throat> the evil Colonel. I mean, he was a moron. I don't know if I'd call him evil. We'll get to there later. We're not actually covering X4 on this particular block. We're going X1 through 3, but anyways. But that was a cool boss fight. The Frog was a very cool boss fight. The Frog I gave a separate positive as well, too. He has this whole mechanic where so he'll he'll run around and he'll jump and he'll get into the things and he'll attack down. You could burn down the trees if you want to prevent him from having some cover. He'll roll off the screen, so that's kind of a reflexes check. But the really cool thing is, is all this is just good boss design, but then he has a thing where he'll summon ads. Now, these ads don't really do much damage and they don't really do much of anything. They just sit there and kind of deny area, area denial, right? You don't touch this because you'll get damaged. Until he eats them. And as he eats them, he powers up and gains new moves and new new damage and can do new things. And that's actually a pretty cool mechanic. And it just it added some flavor to the boss. There's, so there's some good actual boss designs here, despite going back to the Mega Man standard. There's some good level design, too. Some neat little gimmicks, like pro probably the one that really sticks out in my mind the most, is the one where you can attack these orbiting bombs. And you attack them, and what they'll do is they'll launch in the direction you hit them in, and then they'll, they'll collide with the terrain and explode. The significance there is a huge amount of that level, and everywhere those are, has been painted so that that is destructible terrain. So you can launch it into something and get rid of the spikes, or launch it into the floor to open up a new pathway. Or you have to launch it into the, into the, in the wall in front of you in order to progress. It was a very cool mechanic, especially since the bombs do absolutely damage you, and are the kind of thing you still have to be careful and cautious about. So 
it's it's a whole risk reward try to explode your way through the thing. It was a very cool mechanic and I loved it. And there's a bunch of little things like that. And that's the micro improvements thing I wanted to talk about. Describing how this game is better than Z1 would ultimately just boil down to me talking about the nitty gritty, which again, as we've talked about back in the Bloodborne thing, I don't do that level of thing. I, I'm effectively incapable of it. I do middle level. But what I mean by micro improvements is it's clear that they sat down and thought about everything they were doing and just did tiny little changes to optimize and improve the overall experience. The terrain was clearly designed more with the small camera in mind. There were still some gotcha issues. There was still plummeting down into spike pits you can't see, but it was a lot less. And for the most part, you had a much more better idea of what you were looking at. Boss designs had a lot less bullcrap in their design and a lot less kill you in three hits and a lot more actual mechanics and gimmicks to make the boss interesting. A lot of the levels had a lot more stuff to look at. Now, this is what I usually call doodads, which is a term that was coined by Blizzard way back in like the early 90s and is, is an industry standard. Doodads is all the little details that aren't necessary for the level. It's all the, the flavor the additives that make the level look more interesting. And it's very important from a gameplay perspective and critical from a storytelling perspective. Most Mega Man games have good doodad placement in general. Mega Man Zero One didn't. Most of Mega Man Zero One was mostly just big empty corridors with nothing really there. Z2, Mega Man Zero Two, actually bypasses that and actually has stuff you can look at and has stuff that adds to that. Also, the in-game cutscenes were improved. Well, they still have the little slide panels of someone having drawn a picture and they have some text over that. They also have actual cutscenes, in-engine cutscenes is what these are referred to as, where the actual characters kind of look and they animate. And they have all sorts of animation sprites of them nodding or looking down or whatever to emote and evoke what's going on. Which I suppose is as good a time as any to mention that this game also has arguably a better story, but also worse at the same time. Um, but before I talk about that, I, I want to finish talking about gameplay just super quick. Did you know that... No, I'm, I'm not going to make that joke. I'm not going to make that joke. <laughs> I changed my mind. I changed my mind. I'm going to check my notes super quick here. The music was finally good. <laughs> I didn't care for the music in Z1 all that much. But I did... Ah, yep, forms. I knew there was something else I wanted to talk about, and that's the forms... And that is the EX things. Now, th there was already kind of a thing back in Mega Man Zero One that rewarded you for having A rank or higher, and that's the enemies would use a desperation move to make the fight more interesting. I didn't get that because the, the ranking system is kind of silly in these games, and the requirements for it are equally silly. But, oh, and nothing tells you what those requirements are, really. You just kind of have to divine it. But one thing they did very well was the optional missions. Each level actually has an optional objective, and it is completely optional. All it does is changes your score for your rating. But it's also fun. I went out of my way to get almost all of those, even though my, my rating was consistently a D, because I was using Cyber Elves. But I really enjoyed bothering to stretch myself out and defeat all the things so we could gather the supplies. Or trying to rescue, uh, you know, take out all of the, 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 the computer devices in order to make sure that the hacking uh, attack is being brought down. Or not killing any of our own troops who have been mind controlled and just all sorts of cool stuff like that. And it adds to it. I always love games that approach difficulty in that manner. They give you a bonus objective, which is harder to do. And you don't have to do it. Probably the first game I really encountered that pulled this is all the way back in the SNES, Yoshi's Island. Yoshi's Island is not actually all that hard of a game. Now that may sound like an elitist statement, but what I mean by that is most of you who remember Yoshi's Island as being hard were probably doing all the coins and getting all the red coins. and So you get all the red coins, get all the Yoshi coins, and end the stage with full health. That's hard. 
<laughs> I, I'm, there's no elitism here. That sucked. That took me a while to 100% that game. But that's my point. That's the difficulty, is doing the optional stuff. World of Warcraft, to use another example, also approached this for quite a while, and arguably still does, where you've got the raid. Okay, sure, you've got the raid boss. You've got the dungeon boss. But you know what you could do is you could fight this particular boss and never let him actually use this ability. Or never let anyone in the raid take damage from this attack. Those are the achievements that eventually help to get you the particular mount for that thing. And those achievements are just fun because they add mutator difficulty to it rather than making the boss hit harder or have more health or whatever. I love that kind of design and it's awesome. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about, I mentioned music, I mentioned level design, I mentioned boss design, is me checking my notes just to make sure. Right. Forms and kit. I'm, I'm such an idiot. I apologize. Normally I write this stuff down and I just spaced it because I'm kind of in a hurry. I apologize. I, I'm, I've got so much to do. You have no idea. I lose several weeks of my life to surgery and all of a sudden I'm behind on everything. It's weird how that works out. So they have forms. I really like this. Each of these forms you earn by doing stuff in the game. This is kind of the achievements thing again. The downside here, and I did ding the game for this, is it doesn't tell you any of that. I ended up using viewers who helped me figure out how to do stuff and walkthroughs in order to figure out how to actually unlock these forms, which is a damn shame because the forms themselves are kind of awesome. Uh, not only do they give you different stats, like, for example, the X form allows your buster to do substantially more damage, but there's also things like... Um, the Agile form, which makes it so you are super fast when you're dashing and jumping off the walls. Or the Defense form, which just straight up makes you take substantially less damage, but all your attacks do less damage unless you're using a charged attack, so it's great for bosses. And all of this stuff gives you different options for how, how you want to play. And there are multiple forms, and I'm not going to go over all. One of them allows, I didn't actually get this one, but one of them allows your attack to be this massive death doom attack, but your dash is slowed down and you don't really have the same jumping arc. That's cool. Again, that's a mutator. It changes how you play the game, and it's something that you can earn just by the nature of how you go through it. And earning it is not hard if you knew what to do. Now, the EX moves, this is not the same. This is what I started on. I apologize for derailing so much here. The A-ranking thing, right? So in the first game, they just got the new Desperation moves. In this game, if you manage to defeat an enemy at A rank or higher, what you do is you get their, uh, their thing, right? They, you get their EX power. As I mentioned, this this sucks a little bit more, because getting A-ranking is this whole esoteric thing, and it's not quite so much an achievement as the, the difficulty thing I was talking about before, so much as a hassle, especially since, once again, you kind of need a walkthrough to know what to actually do in order to get that A-ranking. But if you do, you get the EX stuff, and it gives you the extra moves, it turns your blaster into a laser or whatever... And that's okay, and it does add to the overall kit between Forms and Cyber Elves, which are much better designed this time around, by the way. Way more interesting and varied stuff that the Cyber Elves can do, like preventing you from getting knockbacked when you're hit, or doubling your HP bar, or making it so that you slide down walls slower, or making it so that you run faster, just uh, making it so that you can just half a boss's health, just like that. Wiping out all the enemies on the screen. Ensuring that all enemies drop all of their items as you go. Now, I know some of these things were in Zero One, but I feel like the Cyber Elves in general are much better designed, micro-improvements, in Zero Two. Especially since leveling them is much less of a pain. I gave several dings to Zero One for being grindy. All of the weapon grinding and all the Cyber Elf grinding, gone. I leveled my weapons to max just by playing the game normally, which is how that should be. And... I leveled several Cyber Elves to max without even really trying, 
which is how that should be. I did pause for about 10 minutes, 10 or 15 minutes, to hit a particularly lucrative farming spot in order to get that. And that's acceptable, just sitting there and farming. I mean, how many of us have farmed E-Tanks or Lives in a Mega Man game? You know, that's that's not really egregious, as opposed to the several, several, several long minutes of trying to slowly farm up energy and weapons like we had in the first game. Story. Spoilers. Mega Man Zero One feels in many ways like a prologue to the Zero series and to the ZX series. It's the bridge. It's the thing that kind of helps establish the setting. It establishes its connections to the X series. And it's mostly a contained story. Now, I said I feel like the Zero Two story is better with some asterisks. The world building in Zero One was a little bit better. They did a better job of just kind of fleshing out the world in the visuals. And the, the ruined base you were in, in the beautific Neo Arcadia, all of that was kind of thrown out the window for the classic Mega Man format, which kind of sucks. But the plot is substantially better designed here. And while the characters are not exactly fantastic, at least there actually are characters this time around. Um, there's two uh, big narrative points here I want to really bring in. The first is the theme of living up to expectations or trying to follow on... Uh, I'm try Let me just put it this way. Most of the characters in this game are pathetic to some extent or another. That's not an insult. They're just lower tier. And they're scrambling and they're struggling and they can barely tell what to do. And then there's Zero, who is Zero. He's a death machine who effortlessly walks his way through everything and does it without even being phased by it. He spent a year fighting nonstop, and and it took all of that to finally drain him enough where he where he was able to be knocked out temporarily. That's zero. He is just operating on such a higher tier than everyone else. But that's the point. Now, this was kind of a, a thing that was sort of brought up in the first game, but it's really hammered in here, especially with the characters of El Piso and Seal. Now, Seal, the human, I don't think they still have said that, she's uh, fully aware of how much the Resistance is pathetic. And the Resistance is kind of pathetic. They accomplish nothing without us, with one exception I'll get to in just a minute. <laughs> so they make things worse. But all they managed to do was flee and find a new base and hide and rebuild. And as this game makes clear, the only reason they're able to do that is because Neo Arcadia left them alone. Twice in this game, it's made very clear that Neo Arcadia knows exactly where the new Resistance base is. One, when Harpuya leaves Zero at the base, and two, when they launch the missile at it. Neo Arcadia is just leaving the Resistance alone. They have their own internal issues, which will be discussed more in Zero Three. So they're like, okay, fine, whatever, you can do whatever. And thus, the only accomplishment the Resistance has is to survive when their enemy stops caring about them. Everyone's aware of this, Seal included, and thus the only time they ever actually get anything done is when Zero is actually getting stuff done, because they are just not operating at his level. This is not a dig or a take. This is good writing, in my opinion. Because remember, this is a post-apocalypse. These are the these are the rebels of the survivors of one of the only surviving arcologies, or city-states if you prefer, on the planet. The planet is a blasted hellscape after the events of X-5, from, thanks to Sigma, and after the events of the Elf Wars, which we haven't really discussed yet, and we'll discuss more in the next game. So after all that nonsense, this is one of the only places where anybody can even breathe and survive. So of course they're lower tier. Zero is from a different era in every sense of the word. So that's the first but, but it really comes into a highlight when it comes to El Piso, a.k.a. TK31, I think was his original name. 
this is great. He, now this is information out of the game, but even the game makes it very clear. He's a nobody. He's nothing. He actually calls himself pathetic. He has no idea what he's doing, and he has no idea how to do it. And so he just kind of is, is struggling constantly. He was a Neo-Arcadian citizen, a low-tier nobody, like I said, TK-31. I don't know if that's a deliberate George Lucas reference or not, because it's kind of, you know, TK-421. Anyways, and so he happened to cross some information about the Elf Wars. That was enough to get him flagged as a maverick. Lol. And we already talked about how they specifically were misusing the label Maverick in, in the backstory of this series, just to mean anybody who disagrees with the current government, as opposed to someone infected with the Maverick virus. Remember, as of this point in time, the Maverick virus is gone. It's just erased. It has been completely wiped out, and there is no trace of the original Maverick virus or the Sigma virus anymore. It's gone. So the term Maverick is just being used as a label, although the concept still exists. We'll come back to that in just a second. So El Pizzo, excuse me, TK-31 was labeled that. He read, he fled to the resistance. He showed a little bit of skill in coordinating and organizing and tactics. So they decide to go ahead and make him their commander. Now, this is kind of stupid, but it makes sense. None of the resi remember, these resistant people, they're all pathetic. They're looking for anybody to take charge. You might be thinking, well, what about Seal? She's a con uh, convincing commander, and she has the charisma and the know-how to do it. But A, she really doesn't want to be the commander, and B, she's frickety busy. Seal has spent the last two games working on figuring out a solution to the energy crisis and trying to find an alternate energy source, like I mentioned before. So she's kind of busy. So, yeah, you, you take this El Pizzo, which is what he's calling himself now, and it's like, oh, okay, cool. His first scene has him being nervous and uncertain and kind of worried about the whole thing. And then when he talks to Zero about it, he lashes out at Zero. Of course he does. Zero effortlessly is better than him. One of his intro scenes has him nervously giving this speech about taking control, and then they find out Zero's outside, and all the resistance leaders immediately rush out, like, oh my god, we gotta go get Zero, we gotta get Zero. It's Zero. Think about how much that would sting. El Pizzo actually has an honest-to-goodness character arc in this game. It's not much, and it's pretty cliche, but I still enjoy it. A cliche is, after all, not necessarily bad. He is someone who is pathetic and knows it. Now, that's a distinction from the Krennic archetype, which we, archetype, which we've talked about several times. No, El Pizzo is exactly aware of how pathetic he is. So he insists on doing something to own up to it. So he comes up with this brilliant plan, Operation Righteous Strike. It's gonna be go, we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna attack the enemy. And that's going to be able to secure our future and secure our peace and we're gonna be able to defeat our foe, yada, yada, yada. This is not a great idea. Remember, and this is kind of hinted at in the backstory, Neo-Arcadia has the resources still at its disposal to throw out wave after wave of mindless Pantheon bots and just sweep over whatever enemy it chooses to. Most of those Pantheon bots have been chasing Zero for a year, which is the main reason the Resistance has been kind of left un untouched for the most part, remember? But my point is... This is an enemy he cannot defeat with a frontal assault. In fact, Zero flat out tells him, this is stupid, we need to keep doing guerrilla tactics against our superior foe. El Pizzo's like, no, you're right, you're right. Let's do guerrilla tactics to get ready for our frontal assault. And Zero's just like, okay. And that's the first four missions. Eventually, this goes badly. The frontal assault fails miserably, and El Pizzo, well, he pieces out. This is funny. He decides that the only way that this can work is if they kill all the humans. Now, Zero-One hinted at this barely, but Zero-Two makes it very clear. 
As of now, and this has been true for decades, humans are citizens. They, they matter. They have rights and legal consequences and all that fun stuff. Reploids are second-class citizens, disposable people. And so what CopyX was doing was he was forcing all of the Reploids to be subservient to the, to the humans to an extreme degree. This is my own made-up example, but one of the things that could be happening, just to show how far this has gotten, is a human could be waiting in line for something, and a Reploid could be in front of that human. And that human could report that Reploid for being a maverick, for being in the way of that person being one more step ahead in the line. Because... That's effectively, this is a take on the three rules of robotics. The, the first rule, right? A robot may not, under any circumstances, allow humanity to come to harm through an action, yada, yada, yada. You know, you know the three laws. You know how that works. And so this is that law, those laws taken to the extreme logical conclusion, or at least one of the extreme logical conclusions, which is everything else doesn't matter as long as the humans are happy. It's mentioned in this episode, this episode, excuse me, in this game, that one of the reasons the energy crisis has been getting worse, one of the reasons that Neo Arcadia is having that kind of problem, is because the humans are using up so much of that energy, and so several Reploids are literally starving. We actually see some of these starving Reploids as they have been cast out of the city, and they're just kind of laying there inert and inactive, because what else are they going to do? Another reason why you know, Seal is so big on trying to get this freaking alternate energy thing going. So we have that extreme mentality. And so El Pizzo makes a logical leap of, of, of logic. If we just kill all the humans, then the, then the energy crisis will go away, at least for now. And we'll be able to have a future for just Reploid. Boy, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? I'm not actually talking about Sigma. I'm talking about Iris here from X4. What I love about this... Now, someone in my comments in the Zero One thing mentioned this, and this is actually very valid. I forgot to mention this myself. Mavericks, as I defined, uh, were people infected by the Maverick virus. But the Maverick concept actually predates the discovery of Zero and the release of the Maverick virus and the subsequent Sigma virus. The concept of a Maverick was a sentient, sapient person deciding to try and kill people. That's it. Right? So, Pete Reploids... The, the people who were replicated androids, based on X's design, were going nuts, so to speak, and killing people and becoming credibles because they're people, for the same reason that humans do it. El Pizzo here, with no virus, with no external influence, with no manipulation or machination, goes maverick all on his own. This, of course, then leads to him insisting that he will become the new great hero by killing all the humans and lead to this new peaceful future. And then he does encounter an external influence. This is when the, the, the cyber elves really come into the world. Now, I'm not going to talk about the mother elf and the, excuse me, the dark elf and the baby elves all that much because they're, while they're important to this story, this is more foreshadowing. A lot of zero, so I mentioned how zero one is a prologue. Zero two is part one of a story. Zero Three is part two of that story, and these two games form a very cohesive whole, and we'll talk more about that later. So, he uh, he goes Maverick, he, in, he encounters the Baby Elves, and the Baby Elves are very much, and I, I point to this right here, for those of you who not aware, I wear this uh, little one ring thing for my ruminations, just as a habit. I've, I've been doing it for years, so I just kind of keep doing it. And I love the ring, so it looks cool, and I think it looks good on camera. But I bring this thing up because this thing is wants to get back to its master, right? It wants to get back to the hand of Sauron. 
down. It really actively goes out of its way to manipulate its holders and wielders and, and people nearby to try and guide it in that direction, which is exactly what the baby elves do. All they really care about is getting back to the dark elf and waking her up. So they start feeding lies and information and manipulation into Elpizo to make him think, I can, I can become powerful. And once I'm powerful, then I can actually do, I could be somebody. I can actually be somebody other than this worthless nobody that I am. And if I'm being honest, that's a very understandable motive. Killing all humans, not so much, but I can at least see where he's coming from. What I love about this most is that while this follows the theme of trying to live up to the past and all that, like I talked about earlier, this also follows the theme of totally misunderstanding the past. For, the, for this next section, I want you to take X7 and throw it out the window really quick. That's important. X, you know, X, Mega Man X, the, the guy, the character, is a bloodthirsty, violent, destructive warrior. Now, you're probably thinking, whoa there, Lore. None of that is intended as an insult. He is someone who chooses to express himself carefully and politely. He is someone who chooses to not be a killer. He is someone who chooses to not be a psychopath. He is someone who chooses to hold himself back with discipline and will. But make no mistake, X enjoys combat as much as, as much as Zero does, actually. And finally, funnily, Zero has the same thing. Zero also holds himself back. He loves, he loves doing that, at least within reason. But he has to have a reason for doing it. He has to have a, a solid, significant uh, purpose in taking down Mavericks, for example, which will come up in Zero Four. And he holds himself back with that wisdom, with that experience, with that discipline, with that willpower. And this is what everyone misunderstands. We see this so obviously in this game because we interact with uh, Fafnir and Leviathan and Harpuya, And all of them are just, yeah, I can't wait to, to fight and kill and destroy and it's going to be amazing. And all of that are, all of those are shards of X's personality. Just like Copy X was a shard of personality, who also was kind of bloodthirsty, by the way. But all of them miss that key point. How many of you seen, have seen Star Trek the original series? There's an episode called The Taste of Armageddon, which I'm very fond of. And I'm not gonna spoil that episode here, but there's a line Kurt gives, which I'm, I don't have written down, which boils down to, yes, we are killers, but we choose not to kill today. And that's what it takes. Tomorrow, we have to choose not to kill again. And that is X and Zero. That is the core of their personalities. They have all that power and all that might and all that experience and all that bloodthirst. And they choose not to go that way with it. And this is what everyone screws up and everyone mistakes, including El Pizzo, who's like, ah, I'm going to kill all the humans and be a great hero. Just like, no, you have missed the mark, sir. And that's one of the brilliant things about this arc is that everyone misunderstands this because, of course, they do. They're, they're going off of vague stories and inferences and legends and deliberate misinformation, thanks to CopyX, thanks for that, because, of, because this is a post-apocalypse. And so they're clinging to what they think was true and not really understanding the reality of the situation. Also, funny little anecdote. All three of the ex-wannabes, Harpuya, Fefnir, and Leviathan in this game, all crush on Zero hard. And they're all pit bits of X's personality. So make of that what you will. I just wanted to comment on that. This is a substantially more enjoyable game than the first one. I'm very much looking forward to the next one, which will be starting Saturday afternoon after the theater premiere tomorrow. I hope you've enjoyed. I look forward to your thoughts. I'll see you next time.